0: My loves, the time has come. The moment we've all been waiting for has somehow arrived. And that is the end of 2020. Of course, every year has its share of ups and downs. And with the rise of instant news coverage, the global social media phenomenon, and access to firsthand accounts via posts, videos, and soundbites... The past few years certainly have seemed more harrowing than those that came before. However, this year has truly gone above and beyond to instill new levels of insanity and chaos into all of our lives. From the global COVID-19 pandemic to murder hornets, to the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, to the Beirut explosion, it's been... A lot. Beyond which most, if not all of us, have been isolated to deal with the fallout of a world that seems to be falling apart. However, that's just one part of the equation. There also have been some really amazing things to come out this year. In the United States, the Supreme Court ruled that no one can be fired for being gay or transgender, A little, (laughs) lot late, in my opinion, but I'll take it. The Black Lives Matter movement became one of the largest mass movements in history. Voter turnout, despite there being a pandemic, was off the charts. And we elected the first woman, Black, Asian, and biracial vice president, as well as now having the first, well, first lady with her own full-time career. Plus, just to toot my own horn a little bit, this podcast came out this year, and I've got to say, I'm pretty proud of it. As much as it's important to be aware of things that need to be fixed, absolutely, I think it's also important to always take time to remember the positive as well. So as we say goodbye to 2020 and all of its horrific wonders, while considering how we want to approach this new year... I bring to you this week three stories of people who lived to the beat of their own drum, who challenged the world they lived in and inspire me. So I hope they inspire you as well. Welcome. I'm Rocket Fox. Join me as we embrace the strange. First story begins at the Ursuline Convent of the Sacred Heart in Toledo, Ohio, just after the end of the Civil War. The atmosphere was quiet and serene, as the nuns would peacefully walk the grounds amid the singing birds and rolling clouds. However, despite the idyllic and seemingly blissful nature, there was something that kept the nuns on edge. Something that kept them on their toes, watching their every step with, perhaps, a hint of fear. It would be the unsuspecting newcomer, who might thoughtlessly step just a little too far off the path, the hard sole of their shoe coming down upon the delicate blades of tender, dewy, fresh-cut grass for just a moment, when they would find themselves at the mercy Of the greatest wrath on the convent, shy of God. That of Mary Fields. Born into slavery around 1832, following the Civil War, she made her way to the convent. Some say accompanying the daughter of a family she'd worked for. Some say joining her own family friend who'd been a nun. However the manner, she eventually arrived. Bold, brash, and six feet tall... Mary was asked by a friendly nun how her journey had been. I'm ready for a good cigar and a drink, came her reply. Despite the unconventional first impression, and the fact that the nuns frequently complained about her fierce temper and, quote, difficult nature, she became the groundskeeper immaculately tending to all around the convent. While she may have started life as a slave— she was not afraid to speak her mind or to stand up for herself. One of the nuns was recorded saying, God help anyone who walked on the lawn after Mary had cut it. And what's more, she even argued with the nuns over her wages. All that said, and considering the fact that Mary in a convent must have been like a cigar-smoking whiskey-drinking fish out of water, she did end up making friends with Mother Amadeus Dunn, who was known to be fearless and charismatic, and was also the Mother Superior. In 1884, Mother Dunn was sent by her bishop to Montana, where she founded another Ursuline convent. One year later, however, Mary received word that her dear friend was gravely ill. Without a second thought, Fields gathered her things and made her way west. Mary nursed on back to health, which, in my mind, would consist of a lot of whiskey and yelling threats at the illness. Whatever the case, it worked, because once the Mother Superior was back on her feet, Mary opted to stay on, finding the West suited her just fine. Her presence there, however, did not suit, well, others, but more importantly, the bishop. Once he got word of her little uh, habits, such as drinking, smoking, shooting guns, wearing men's clothes, he was concerned. Once Mary and the convent's janitor, who was a man, drew their guns during an argument, still in the middle of the convent, that was the straw that broke the bishop's back. She was let go from the convent, and now on her own to live life her way, and by the seat of her men's pants. So, she took a few laundry and odd jobs before history would be made, when she signed on and received the position as a star route carrier with the Postal Service, which was basically an independent contractor carrying the mail via, in her case, stagecoach. She was the second woman in the United States to hold the position, and the first African-American woman. And... As it also turned out, it was the nuns who helped secure the contract as well. They had come to rely on the work she did around the mission, but also, they had really come to like her over the years and wanted to look out for her. At any rate, she took to the new job and career with relish, with the ability to hitch horses on a careening stagecoach during sour weather better than men half her age, which her peers were as at this point, when she got the job, she was in her 60s. Armed with her revolver and rifle, Stagecoach Mary, or Black Mary, as she became known, now was responsible for delivering mail throughout the harsh Montana weather while protecting it from bandits and wolves. If the snow became too deep for her horses to handle, she would strap the mailbags to her back and carry them by foot. She drove the mail for 8 to about 10 years until she retired in the early 20th century into Cascade, Montana, where the locals had come to love her for her fearlessness, generosity, and the kindness she showed to the children. Once she settled in, she started a laundry business, an eatery, and also babysat the local kiddos, all while retaining her fame. She drank for free in saloons, even after the local law forbade women from entering them. All women, that is, except for Mary Fields. She ate for free at local restaurants and hotels, and she even became the mascot for the town's basketball team. On a bitter day in December, on the 5th in 1914, at the age of roughly 81 or 82, Mary Fields died the town of Cascade raised money to have her buried in a cemetery on the road that linked the town to the mission that had first brought her to Montana. It's said that her funeral was one of the largest in town. It was said later by actor Gary Cooper, who had the opportunity to meet her as a child, that Mary Fields was, quote, one of the freest souls to ever draw a breath, or 38. These were days in which women especially women of color, especially former slaves, were expected to behave a certain way. But Mary Fields blew through all of that like a 200-pound fist to the jaw. She was going to be authentic to herself regardless of who liked it or not or where it took her, and that is the kind of free that I, for one, am inspired to be. story is another that transpires after the Civil War. On April 13th of 1888, with a headline that reads, Negro Dive Raided, 13 Black Men Dressed as Women, Surprised at Supper, and Arrested. The dinner itself had been lovely and not the first of its kind, though each had been held with the utmost secrecy and discretion. Throughout the 1880s in Washington, D.C., There had been numerous quiet dinners and balls of this sort that were run under a face known well to the community of the time, a name known as the Queen. Like Mary Fields, William Dorsey Swan was born into slavery, with the exact year of their birth unknown. It's thought likely around 1858 in Maryland. While not much is known about their life, what is known is that their acts were historic in many ways. For one, Swan was the first to refer to themselves as a quote, queen of drag, a title that others began to address Swan by as well. While hosting drag balls and parties was certainly a brave act, it was the arrest from the news headline before and what followed that really ticked history's box. The night of the arrest, the police burst through Swan's door, pushing past as they tried to stop the officers, telling the lieutenant, you is no gentleman. Knowing that anyone who was caught would have their names published the next day in the news, which indeed they were, along with debaucherous details about the indecency of their behavior. Some tried to escape while the police forced their way in, and a brawl broke out, during which the Queen's, quote, gorgeous dress of cream-colored satin was torn to shreds. Arrested and taken before a judge, Swan pled not guilty to being charged with, quote, keeping a disorderly house, a.k.a. running a brothel, which I suppose is the most insulting thing they could think to throw at the time. They were sentenced to 300 days in jail. However, at the sentencing, Judge Miller felt the need to add I would like to send you where you would never again see a man's face, and then would like to rid the city of all other disreputable persons of the same kind. Thieving and petty assaults amount to nothing as compared with the conduct of these people. You know, conduct like dressing nice and eating a quiet dinner, the outrage, and me with no pearls to grasp. Three months into the sentence... Swan filed a petition of pardon to President Grover Cleveland, saying that they were a respectable and hard worker with a record of long and continuous employment, continuing that the sentence was severe to the crime, and if released, they would, quote, live a proper and law-abiding life. Thirty friends and allies, thought to likely be members of the drag or queer community, signed the petition as well in show of support. The petition was uh, not received favorably by the U.S. attorney, but still sat awaiting the president's eye, during which time friends began to call the attorney's office expressing concern over Swan's health. As an aside, a few months before, the same doctor had given the queen a clean bill of health, but was now very sure that Swan was suffering from a disease of the heart The pardon finally reached President Cleveland, who, along with taking the new health implications into account, on July 29th of 1896, uh, denied the pardon. After completing their time in jail, despite the danger and ostracization, Swan continued to hold balls and dinners until around 1900, when they retired from hosting. From here, history loses track of them— And sadly, not even a photograph remains by which we can see the Queen. However, their legacy remains. Writer and historian Channing Gerard Joseph, who is publishing a book on Swan, says that they are the, quote, "...earliest recorded American to take specific legal and political steps to defend the queer community's right to gather without threat of criminalization, suppression, or police violence." Along with paving the way for LGBTQ celebrations, gatherings, and protests, William Dorsey Swan inspired those around themselves to explore, enjoy, build community, and engage with their identities in a way that society wasn't ready for. And I think that is truly what makes someone an inspiration, a leader, and a queen. story I have for you in this episode takes us across an ocean and a few years earlier. The year was 1801. While sources are unclear whether or not the 26-year-old Shi Hyang-ku was merely a prostitute or had worked her way to madam, what is clear is that this was the year she left the floating brothel behind her. The man was 7 years her elder. Rough around the edges in some ways, but cunning, and she respected that. He was also very powerful, which she respected even more. When they were alone, he would muse about how his family's roots traced back to some of the most notorious pirates of the 17th century. And she would listen and smile, pouring him another drink. She was smart, witty, shrewd with a head for business, which he respected. His visits soon became like clockwork until the fateful day they ended, because she joined him on his ship in matrimony. Now, not every woman would immediately take to the roguish life, but Ching Shi, as history would come to know her, was no wilting flower. In fact, as I researched her, Wikipedia noted in both quotation marks, and italics, which I can only take to mean is extremely serious, that she, quote, "...fully participated in her husband's piracy." The two signed a formal contract, allowing Qingxi 50% control and share of her husband Cheng I's endeavors. Additionally, around that time they adopted the promising Cheng Po, only eight years younger than Qingxi, so he would become Cheng's fully legal heir. Which, at the end of the day, is a lot of legal formalities for a fleet of pirates, but I digress. With all the paperwork's spiritual I's dotted and T's crossed, or rather the Chinese equivalent, the plundering lovebirds set sail. Sadly, there was little time to celebrate, as the marriage made in swashbuckling heaven only lasted a mere six years before Cheng I died in Vietnam, at the tender age of 39. There was no time to waste on mourning, however, as there was a practical nautical armada waiting for a new leader with no shortage of hungry candidates lurking in the wings. Ching Shi was not about to allow the fleet to go to just anyone, as she had just the right leader in mind. Her. Through an intricate web of cultivating personal relationships with just the right people, including powerful members of her late husband's family, drawing from existing support among fleet captains, and solidifying a partnership with her adopted son in a very... unconventional manner, they became lovers. Ching Shi solidified her position in a fleet so large, they numbered... Three hundred ships of somewhere between twenty to forty thousand pirates. Once she firmly held command, her next task was to unify the fleet. It was no small task, but as with any household, there needed to be rules. Working alongside her first in command, Chung Po Sai, who was also her figurehead in those. Certain trying times that it called for a man to appear to be in charge, she issued a code of laws to each of the ships. Number one, anyone giving their own orders that didn't come down directly from Ching Shi or disobeying those of a superior was beheaded on the spot. Number two, no one was to steal from the public fund or any villagers that supplied the pirates. Number three, all goods taken as booty had to be presented for group inspection. It was all registered by a purser, then distributed by the fleet leader. The original Caesar received twenty per cent, and the rest went into a public fund. Number four, actual money was turned over to the squadron leader, who only gave a small amount back to the Caesar, so the rest could be used to purchase supplies for the unsuccessful ships. Withholding once was a severe back whipping. Twice, or withholding a larger amount, that was death. Now, while the code specified that women were to be released, and while this is undoubtedly the tale of an extremely intelligent and forward thinking empowered woman, let's not forget that these were still pirates, and it was reported that many times after an attack, male crew members would make beautiful captives their wives, after which, however, he was expected to be faithful, for what that's worth, I guess. Unmarried sex with prisoners, however, was a big no-no. Pirates that raped female captives were immediately put to death. However, pirates that had consensual sex with a female captive, those were beheaded, while the consenting woman was then thrown overboard with cannonballs attached to her legs. So, very little incentive either way. During her nautical reign, Qing Shi became literally unstoppable. Literally. In 1808, the Chinese government had had enough of her saucy ways and decided no more. However, after a series of fierce battles her red-flag fleet managed to both pillage and take over the government vessels, leaving the officials only fishing boats for battles. Sadly, as it is with all good things they say, Ching Shih's reign, too, would come to an end. As she grew larger and more powerful, she drew attention from, well, more powers. And in September and November of 1809, the fleet was holding out against a rough series of defeats against the Portuguese navy. Ching-shi consulted with Chung po sai but they knew they couldn't last forever. Eventually, in 1810, they surrendered, accepting the amnesty offered by the King Imperial Government, who, as it turned out, offered the very tasty deal of allowing the pirates to agree to surrender who would end their piratical careers and also being allowed to keep the loot obtained that same year. In this amnesty, it allowed only 60 pirates to be banished, 151 to be exiled, and only 126 to be put to death from her remaining fleet of 17,318. With the lives of buccaneering behind them, her number one, Cheng Po Sai, returned to his former name and was repatriated into the government, where he became a captain in the navy. Ching Shi and Cheng Po dissolved their mother-son relationship, which allowed them to officially be married. They had retained this relationship the entire time. The romantic one, not the mother-son one. Ching Shi used her loot to open a gambling house and after Chengpo died at sea in 1822, at the evidently fateful age of 39, Jingxi moved her family to Macau, where she opened another gambling house and brothel, and became involved in the salt trade. As she grew older, she was called upon by the Chinese head of state, Lin Zishu, as an advisor when battling the British during the First Opium War. And five years later, she passed away surrounded by her family at the age of 69, undisputed queen of the pirates. Which, inspirationally speaking, I think really speaks for itself. believe that on the strike of midnight, January 1st, everything just miraculously changes. Not completely. I think it marks a beginning. A jumping-off point. A good place on the calendar to decide this is where things change. But I think that we are the ones that make the change. We are powerful, and we have the ability to shape our lives Even when it seems difficult, and even when the results may seem so small or slow that they are hard to detect, we can each choose to move and shake in our own strange way. And, even better yet, we can start any day we want, even if the beginning of the year is the easiest. Whether drinking whiskey while delivering mail with two guns and a cigar holding covert dinner parties whilst dressed to the nines, or ruling a fleet of pirates to carry out your every command, may the coming year be your oyster, and may your strangest of dreams come true. Thank you so much for joining me. I do have an extra story up this week on my Patreon, which tells the tale of one of my favorite women who sang, loved, sword-fought, kidnapped, maybe committed a little body snatching and arson to the beat of her own drum. To find out more, check out patreon.com slash rocket Fox. That's R O C K E T T E. And as for me, come visit for a spell at fantasticallystrange.com and on Instagram at fantastically strange and Twitter at fantastic As always, Thank you so, so much for your support. If you're enjoying the show so far, please let me know. Maybe even a follow, share, or review. I write, research, edit, and do all of the things myself. And as always, I am so honored to be able to bring you stories about topics that I am passionate about. And your ear means the world to me. If you do have any topics you'd like to see covered, any questions, comments, or, just to say hi, email me at fantasticallystrange at rocketfox.com. All sources are linked and credited in the show info. The amazing logo illustration is by Constance Hermit, and the killer intro song, Hey Dorothy, is by Cruise Machine. Thank you so much again, and I can't wait to see you next year. You found some trouble here. Surrender the Watch your rainbows.